Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes or Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And I'd like to start off by thanking our newest patron members. These are all new sustaining members that have signed up since the last episode that came out last week. So we'd like to give a shout out to John, Rob Toe, Jacob Luz, Jeff Lutz, Serena Beachy, Ryan Butland, Sarah Pendergrass. Oh, this one's good. Stormin Hawk. That's a good name. Blake Davenport and Jean Sebastian Larocque. Thank you all so much. Uh, really, the outpouring of support from over on Patreon has been really, uh, really overwhelming and very much appreciated. So if you are liking these shows, if you like this kind of content and you want to step up to help them keep going and growing into the future, you can find all the information over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. And uh, I've set a new goal of quitting my day job and making Bikes for Death my full-time career. Uh, so if you'd like to join me and help make that a reality, you can learn more over there on Patreon. But that's enough about that. Okay, well, we got a long show today, so let's move right along, shall we? I want to give a huge shout out to today's sponsor, Backcountry Packraft Rentals. Um, you can find them online at backcountrypackrafts.com. This trip and episode was literally made possible by Backcountry Packraft Rentals. They provided the pack rafts that Sarah and I used on this trip. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that their service and quality of products was impressive. As we will be discussing on today's episode, the demand for pack rafts is at an all-time high. And where you can find them, you might get sticker shock. They're kind of pricey, probably worth it. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about this on the episode, but I recommend that you check out backcountrypackrafts.com if you're thinking about giving bike rafting or pack rafting a try. And I think you should. They have a large inventory of alpaca rafts along with all the gear and accessories that you need. I also found their pack rafting 101 series helpful as I was preparing for my first pack rafting trip, uh, literally going in blind or just really gobbling up as much information as I could because I'd never done it before. So if you're thinking about giving it a try, if you want to go pack rafting or bike rafting, and uh, hopefully this episode will, will help get you out there, go check out backcountrypackrafts.com and patrons of this show get an additional 15% off their order. I also want to give you all a reminder about the Arkansas High Country Race. Nestled there in the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, the bike-friendly community of Fayetteville is a picturesque mountain town located in the northwest corner of the state and is surrounded by some of the highest peaks in the mountain range. Fayetteville's backyard is the Ozark National Forest with 1.2 million acres of public land with countless miles of canopy-covered gravel roads and backcountry single-track trails. For race fans, Fayetteville is excited to once again be the host community for this year's Arkansas High Country Race. It's a 1,000-mile ultra-endurance bikepacking race that starts and finishes from Fayetteville's historic downtown square beginning October 9th. 
Home to bikepacking gravel routes, big and small, consider Fayetteville as a hub for your next bikepacking adventure. Registration for this year's Arkansas High Country Race opens June 1st. Find out more at experiencefayetteville.com. I also want to tell you about my friends over at hefe.bike. That is hefe, H-E-F-E dot B-I-K-E, not just another e-commerce bike store, hefe.bike carries products specifically designed with bike packers and gravel enthusiasts in mind. You, that's you. Uh, with brands like K-Lite, Jayhawker, carbon wheel sets for bike packing and gravel, and Curve Walmart bars, which are where I got mine and the ones I use on my Fargo. So check out these and other products that they have over at hefe.bike. And uh, ding, 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 patrons of this show get an extra 10% off. Incentive, incentive, incentive. All right, everybody, well, let us get to the show. Today's episode is one that I'm really excited about. Uh, again, we're trying something a little bit new. I originally reached out to Ryan and wanted to interview him. And I know he li lives a really, uh, to me, a fascinating lifestyle and something I'm interested in. But it quickly turned into a bike rafting trip. And so we're taking it a completely different direction. This episode, I hope, is a, a nice blend between an interview plus some good information. And this is one of those episodes where I intended it. I, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, it'll be about an hour and a half. But I think Ryan and I became pretty good friends on the trip. And since we're recording this episode a couple weeks after, it was good to just catch up. And a couple times we went down uh, a few rabbit holes, especially at the end, that we kind of were conversations that we picked up on that we continued from going on this trip together. And so it's kind of a tangent. We throw in a couple tangents in there. I wanted to mention that if you really want to just find the information about bike rafting or bike pack rafting, um, I've timestamped everything in the show notes. And so if you're looking for a particular topic or if you want to revisit this episode at a later date, I've tried to make it easy for you so that you can just find um, exactly what you're looking for. I hope that helps to make this episode um, enjoyable and also a good resource for your future bike rafting trips. Of course, uh, we can only speak from our experience and mine was extremely limited, but we did learn a lot. And so um, this is kind of hopefully a beginner's guide to bike rafting uh, with some a little bit more expertise sprinkled in from our friend Ryan Stoyer. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. And that includes the uh, trip that we went on that you're about to hear about. I really enjoyed getting to know Ryan. This community never ceases to amaze me. Uh, it's made up of some of the most amazing human beings on planet Earth, some of the most interesting people doing the most interesting things in the most interesting ways. And so I'd like to introduce the most interesting, or one of the most interesting men in adventure sports, Ryan Stoyer. Take it away, Miles, with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your boss, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. 
You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right, everybody. Today on the podcast, we got the Stoyer Effect, aka Ryan Stoyer, calling in from where are you calling in? I can't say the name. <laughs> I'm in the infamous LJ, Georgia. Oh man, I've gotten so much slack or crap for not being able to say it right. So LIJ, Georgia, close enough. Yeah, yeah. LJ, LJ, like Ella J, Ella J. I think people are going to be happy if I can finally get it right. I don't want to make the internet too mad, you know. There's enough hate in the world. I don't need to contribute by not getting Ella J right. Hey, I did it. Ella J. There it is. Mm. It just rolled off the tongue. Well, dude, thanks for uh, joining me on Zoom. Just to kind of fill in the gaps for people listening, we recently did a bike pack rafting or bike rafting trip to uh, Northwest Arkansas. And it was the byproduct of me reaching out because you're building a tiny house out of all these materials that you sourced. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But I was like, man, this is cool. I like the lifestyle. And you're like, yeah, but how about we go bike pack rafting? I was like, okay, let's, let's do that. So yeah, that was the one condition, the one condition. It was a good condition. I appreciate you, uh, you challenging me in that way, you know, because it's something I've never done. And, you know, from your perspective, I didn't realize this. That was your first bike ride slash bike trip since having your bike stolen like almost a year ago. Is that right? Yeah. So it was it was a good eight or nine months ago now. I picked up my new bike from the bike shop that morning that I then drove 10 and a half hours to Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. And then that, and that was like your first bike ride. Yeah. It was the shakedown. I was as off the couch as it gets. And uh, it was great. Yeah, it, w- it was great. It was definitely, the whole thing was an adventure in that there was four of us on the trip. Three of us has, had never pack raft. You were fresh back to cycling, your first like kind of big trip back since having your bike stolen. But overall, man, it went pretty well. We had some weather and some cold and stuff. And again, we'll talk about all that. But have you finally uh, dried off and warmed up since then? <laughs> I have. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm finally dried out. Man, I was chilled shivering like half the way home (laughs) oh my gosh for real man like it took a while to recover from just being in cold and wet for essentially three days you know uh, especially that that first two days were pretty pretty brutal but yeah so instead of we we talked about originally it was going to be hey we'll do the trip and then we'll do a trip report and we were just so freaking hammered afterwards that I don't think either one of us were too motivated or had the mental space to record an episode and have it be intelligible at all. So I was borderline delirious by the end of it. Um, Yeah, I was like (laughs) pre-symptomatic for pneumonia. I was like really not not on my A game. So I figured the uh, listeners deserve better. How did you feel afterwards, like the drive home and everything? Were you really like hit pretty hard? Yeah, the drive home was a little rough um, and my phone was completely, you know, unfunctional, waterlogged. So I, I navigated the interstate system without GPS. So I think it was a, a minor accomplishment. Welcome um, back to 1990. Yeah, <laughs> didn't even have a MapQuest or anything to guide me. But uh, yeah, no, I was not feeling great on the drive home, but uh, 
got tons of sleep that night finally. And, um, yeah, bounced back pretty all right the next day. Did you, uh, sleep on the way home or did you just make a straight shot? I did. I drove until about midnight. Might actually have been like 1 a.m. And then found a place in, in Arkansas, just off the highway on a side street. I think I slept in the, uh, the parking lot of a bank. Yeah. And then got up and that was it. So I drove on the way home and I made it two hours or no, sorry, till 2 a.m. And I only had like two hours left to get home. So I would have got home at like 4 a.m. But I don't like to push it. I'm a night owl anyway. So staying up till 2 a.m. isn't that big of a deal. But I started to get sleepy. And so I pulled into a church parking lot and finished off the other two hours in the morning. But it was a real, uh, real adventure. You know, for people listening, at first I wanted to like get really into, you know, your tiny house and all that. But as I've done this first bike rafting trip, A, I've learned how cool it is, how fun it is, and it's worth talking about on a podcast at length. And B, there's not a lot of information. It's still like super new. So let's get to know Ryan a little bit, and then let's hop over and talk about bike rafting to the ability that we can and tell people what we know. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack about pack rafting. <laughs> Good one. Ding! So, Ryan, where do you live? I live in LJ, Georgia. I've been living here for, I guess, about five months now. Before that, I was spending three years in Asheville, North Carolina, and I really traced my, uh, my bike backpacking roots to Asheville specifically, but I am a Georgian native originally and raised just outside of Atlanta. So, but where, like what kind of dwelling do you live in? Oh, yeah. Oh, so there's, that's a multi-layered question. Yeah. So I live in a 144 square foot tiny home. It's a 12 by 12. And uh, yeah, I, I built it this year, this winter and spring out of uh almost entirely salvaged materials. Yeah. And just with a, a ton of help from friends and, you know, community members that I met after I moved here and uh, yeah, put it together and it's great. What kind of materials did you use? I mean, uh, I know you, you like almost all of it was recycled or reclaimed or. Yeah. The only uh, new materials I used really were about half of my insulation and like the plywood that I used for subflooring and sheathing. So uh, I framed it out uh, like stick framing, but all my building materials that I salvaged were from actually uh, a large stables that were behind the local bike shop here. So shout out to Cardike Bikes. They've been absolutely awesome. Uh, letting me go back there and help them tear down this, uh, this huge barn essentially that uh, is on their property and they're expanding their backyard bike park and they wanted to reclaim that property so we can have a larger area for the pump track. So my, my framing materials are actually 40 to 50 year old dimensional lumber that's two inches by six inches, not like a two by six that you would pick up at Lowe's or Home Depot these days. They are fat, chunky, robust two inches by six inches solid. So do those automatically come with their own like higher insulation properties, I would assume? Probably to some degree. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not an engineer, but... They got a little bit more thermal mass, I imagine. Thermal mass, yes. <laughs> Dude, so where did you get like the idea to do it? I mean, 
stuff like this really appeals to me when people build like the life that they want or you literally built the home that you wanted the way you wanted to build it with your own hands like I love it when people create what they want, you know. Actually, we could segue into your uh, your maker space and give them a shout out too. But oh yeah, yeah. Anyway, you're all about making things. It's it's all part of the same picture, you know. I feel like a lot of people have a, a vague impression of, gee, it would be cool to like build my own home one day, and um, that's just something that I vaguely had in the back of my mind growing up, and you know, in my young adulthood as well, and. So I've spent the last three years essentially being a full-time dirt bag, living out of the back of my Tacoma. And it's been great. And I'm still going to be doing that several months out of the year, especially in the summer. But um, housing security is really nice too, especially during the winter time. And um, yeah, so I've got uh, my best friend of the world, Andrew Roach and his wife, Amber. They own the coffee shop here in LJ, Georgia. And they've got a house not far from here as well. And Andrew and I used to run a record store together back in Marietta, Georgia. Been best friends for like 10 years. And um, they, uh, yeah, they opened up a record store here in the coffee shop. And we've started talking about opening up that makerspace, which we can talk about that more in a little bit. And, you know, they asked me if I wanted to come be involved again. And I was like, absolutely. I need a place to live. Can I build a tiny home in your backyard? And they were like, <laughs> sure. So, uh, yeah, you know, my dad always says your friends will take you places you can never go on your own. And I think that's really, really good advice. How long did it take you to build it from, you know, concept and permission to permission granted? And then now you're living in your house. How long did that take? So I showed up in town like December 6th or something of 2020. And we had already basically agreed that I would be building something. I hadn't drawn up the plans yet. And then I was searching for materials and that was kind of a, you know, just one obstacle after the other. I was looking at buying barns and driving an hour each way to dismantle stuff. And, you know, I've got a four cylinder truck, so I can't really pull a trailer full of lumber. And I, you know, had all these issues of, you know, how on earth am I going to do this? And then I found out the bike shop just has this large structure they're trying to get rid of. And the bike shop is, you know, a block or two down the street from the coffee shop here. Nice. And um, yeah, I mean, walking distance, bike distance. So yeah, I, once I got in there and I started tearing down materials and stuff, I realized, okay, this is just about everything that I need. And um, it was about six weeks of construction between me, my good friend, Moses, who I couldn't have done this without a uh, local guy, my friend, Kelly, who uh, has let me borrow all his power tools and stuff. And then a couple of other people just in and out, you know, throwing in a couple of days at a time, six weeks. And we went from foundation to inhabitable, but still not done yet. I've, uh, I've really been slacking ever since it's been, um, comfortable enough to live in. Yeah. So, yeah. You kind of slow down. You probably want to take a break, man. Six hard weeks of building it. You probably just want to yeah. like enjoy it for a hot minute. It was every single day, rain or shine. We hung a, a 20 foot by 30 foot tarp over the construction area so we could work in the rain yeah it was it was pretty draining so after that initial six weeks it's been great how rewarding was it to sleep there your first night oh it was it was surreal it it still is is unreal you know i've only been staying there maybe two months now and 
yeah, it's, I mean, it's like a treehouse. It's like a, a clubhouse. It's just fun. So yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, I can imagine going from your truck to, you know, a tiny house that, I mean, it's like going into a mansion, you know I mean? And we got to mention your tub. So if you follow him on Instagram, half of his Instagram stories are just him sitting in his outdoor tub, <laughs> listening to music. Yeah. I've got a clawfoot tub with a, um, uh, propane powered tankless water heater. So it's just on demand. I've got my 20 pound cylinder there and, um, fire that baby up, just running a garden hose into it. <laughs> and, um, I'm out there in the, the trees and the forest and the birds are always singing and it's so, so relaxing. Yeah. It looks pretty sick, man. Congrats to you. I just love it when people, you know, you sacrifice for a few years, you live in your truck, you like source all the materials for free, you get your friend to, you know, let you build. I mean, you like built this thing for next to nothing and now you have a house, you know? Yeah. It's pretty cool. I, I think the, the total dollar amount on it was right around three grand and that's pretty darn good. I mean, I've got windows that are three foot wide by six feet tall. I've got four of those on the downstairs and more windows upstairs and downstairs. And it's. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to mention is uh, I need you to send me pictures because we'll, we'll put this on the blog post on the website because you really have to see it. I mean, like you said, it's not done, but considering the fact that you built in six weeks and like sourced most of the material and only spent $3,000, like I would totally live there if I didn't have two kids, yeah. <laughs> <live> there. <laughs> yeah. which is uh, one of the benefits, I guess, of being El Solo. So yeah, we'll, I'll, we'll leave that for there and let people, uh, we'll, you know, do like some progression pictures and then the final product, you know, cause, uh, it really is, it's cool, man. And I think, man, more people should do that. You know, I wish, I wish more people would do that because it's, your path to like home ownership is relatively easy if you're willing to, you know, put in the work and have some friends to help you and um, be a little creative and stuff. And that's one thing I learned about you. You definitely are a very creative, outside the box thinking kind of guy in a good way, you know, I mean, at least in my opinion. Hey, there's a kid going down the street uh, practicing riding without any hands. <laughs> nice. <laughs> On his bike. Shout out it. to the no hand kid. Shout out no hand kid. You got to practice. You're going to eat shit a couple times. It's okay. Hope he's got a helmet on. <laughs> I didn't notice. Uh, he was so flashy with his uh, no hands. I think he'll go by again. I think he's going back and forth. So yeah, yeah. Give a shout out to um, what y'all got going on with the makerspace because you're like launching that like today or something, right? Yeah. So we're, I mean, we closed on the building less than a week ago. So we're, we're going full speed as much as possible, but basically for, for folks who don't know what a makerspace is, makerspaces are essentially a community operated workspace where people can meet, socialize, collaborate, create, and just kind of build off of one another and have access to resources that it doesn't make sense for everyone to buy on their own. You know, if you think about it, the, the majority of woodworking tools, any kind of tool basically sits idle for the majority of its existence. So we're essentially like a community-based tool library, have a full woodworking shop, community garden, 3D printers, CNC machine, laser cutter, vinyl cutter, recording studio for music, a TV studio, um, really just anything that we can do to help encourage people to be creative and yeah, it, you know, empower and enable people to hopefully 
support themselves or offset some of the living expenses that it takes. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Well, and, and enable people with ideas a faster and a more economical way between, I mean, I produce a podcast and I don't have a studio or anything. I mean, why I don't have a studio? Because it costs money. All the recording equipment, all the stuff. I mean, you, it, it all adds up. Yeah, I didn't think about all that stuff when I got into podcasting, but it, it does add up. And, uh, and there's probably like, someone not very far away from you that has all that stuff and they only use it a couple hours a week. I, I mean, I love it. It's a, it's a, such a great concept. And I mean, you're probably a, a perfect person to be because you're like living the principles that you're teaching about, you know, like uh, being resourceful and utilizing things that are here for your benefit. I looked at y'all's Instagram and the layout that y'all have. I mean, it's impressive. Is that the final design with it's like a octagon type yeah. shape? So our building was uh, built in the 1950s. It originally was a restaurant called the Top of LJ Restaurant. It was run along with the uh, motel, just right next to it. Two brothers, one owned each. And then for the last couple of decades, it was actually the uh, DFAX building. And so they you know, went in and added a bunch of different like rooms and compartmentalized everything and added on another rectangular building next to it. But we've got almost 8,000 square feet on two acres of this large octagon of all sorts of different rules that we have, you know, labeled and segmented um, into a, a bunch of, you know, different like activity specific rooms. It's you know, cool. Iconic looking shape. Yeah, it really is. It is. So if people want to follow along, I mean, it, it's super neat. I know y'all are just kind of getting started, like you said, but worth following along, I think, especially if you're in that area. Yeah. I mean, we'll be open right around the time that this uh, episode airs. So check us out. We're right off of River Street, really, really accessible to like the downtown area here in LJ. Come in. I won't be around because I'll actually be uh, in Washington State working my summer job. But um, there's still a lot of really cool stuff to check out. Where online can you find uh, the Makerspace? LJMakerspace.org. Ooh, yeah, buddy. Um, I just want to make sure we give them a plug because why not? You work there and that's really cool. So let's talk about bikepacking. Yeah, what well, I know you had a pretty epic first bikepacking trip. So <laughs> yeah. uh, what was your first bikepacking trip? Sure. Uh, so my first like, real bikepacking trip was about 1,500 miles, the Canadian section of the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, down into Montana, took the Missoula Connector, and then rode down into Darby and connected across the uh, Magruder Corridor in Idaho to connect it over to the Wild West route from uh, bikepacking routes. And um, yeah, so rode up there into Idaho. And, you know, I had had great plans to uh, continue a little bit farther than that. But um, as many of us have learned, one bad wreck can really end a trip. So yeah, I ended up dislocating my shoulder and uh, in some wilderness in Idaho, limping myself out of there, hitchhiking into town and um, getting picked up by a, uh, a friend of mine who took me over to Washington where I got to help run a hostel for the rest of the summer. It had a great ending. <laughs> How far did you have to trek out once you got injured? So I was really lucky. I only had like five miles to walk my bike. Okay. My shoulder wasn't, it wasn't in a ton of pain. Um, it was a pretty minor dislocation as all things go. And I had just finished 
that section across the Magruder Corridor. For anyone familiar with it, it's about 120 miles that goes across the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, which is the largest contiguous wilderness area in the lower 48. That means there is absolutely nothing out there. Um, <laughs> and at the top of the pass, there were still down trees and snowpack from the season before. And that was first week of July, still snowpack up there. And um, yeah, didn't see anyone the whole time I was there. So that was a couple days before I actually wrecked. So had something happened while I was there, I would have been in some pretty dire straits. But luckily, I was only five miles away from a road where I was able to hitchhike into town and grab a motel for the night and hit a clinic in the morning. So to fill in the blanks for people listening, I mean, you didn't come from off the couch to do a 1,500-mile ride. You were a pretty accomplished thru-hiker. And I'm curious, you know, being a thru-hiker, and I know you love thru-hiking still to this day, what was that exper- first experience like bikepacking, you know, compared to uh, hiking? And especially since you wrecked at the end, where you like, man, <laughs> fuck this shit. You're not going to, you know, wreck on a, you know, going three miles an hour, two miles an hour with your feet. So how was that first experience? Empowering. <laughs> yeah, the, the point of the bike trip, of course, was to cover more ground in less time. I had hiked the Appalachian Trail. I had hiked the Pacific Crest Trail goes down the Cascades and the Sierras uh, from Canada to Mexico, the West Coast. I'd hiked the Pacific Northwest Trail from the Pacific Ocean and the Olympic Peninsula of Washington all the way across to uh, Glacier Park in Montana. But I had not spent a lot of time actually down the crest of the Rockies. Mm. And I wanted to explore that area, but I didn't have the time or the money to hike the Continental Divide Trail, which is 3,000 miles and it's going to take five or six months. So I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll ride my bike. There's a route that does that too. And it seemed like the more frugal uh, opportunity. So yeah. Did you already have a bike at that time? No, I I bought the bike specifically for that trip. And what bike was it? Is this the one that got stolen? Yeah. So that was uh, a 2012 Salsa Fargo 2. The same one you have. Cream scheme. Oh man. Yeah. Pour some out for your dead homie. Yeah. But she was a dream. I miss her dearly. I've got a new Fargo built up custom and got a couple upgrades along with that. So all's well that ends well with a little sacrifice. Did you happen to see on Instagram the, uh, I don't know if I posted it yet. I meant to. The guy that uh, did this contraption where whenever a bike thief takes his bike, the seat will go down, but a piece of rebar stays in place and goes up into your rectum. I have not seen that. Yeah. So this guy, he lives in some foreign country and he was like, I got sick of people stealing my bike. So he devised this thing to go like this. And he's got a picture of like people like getting ass raped by this little invention of his. So uh, my message is death to bike thieves or at least a little bit of ass penetration. Yeah, it's it's a tough scenario. It is. It's not a happy topic. Moving yeah. on. No, there's there's no winners. <laughs> no, there really isn't. But so did you like bikepacking? I guess so. You kept with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'll ever attempt a route quite that, uh, quite that long again. I mean, I plans over, you know, closer to 3000 miles. Um, I actually had plans to go on to the, uh, the plateau passage and connect down in through Moab and stuff later in the season that year. So, uh, you know, a little ambitious, but you never know until you find out, but yeah, loved bikepacking. It's um, definitely requires a different skill set 
I really appreciated the opportunity to kind of reset and experience a little bit more like beginner's mind and, you know, be doing yeah. something, you know, have to be resourceful still and learn how to maintain my bike on the go, um, how to just deal with anything that the, uh, the route throws at you. I definitely underestimated uh, the size and the quantity of the climbs. Um, but yeah, still had a great time. I, I do miss, or I did miss to some degree being able to go into like more wilderness areas, more remote areas that you're not just on this road. Uh, a lot of the backpacking routes that I'll do go cross country, don't follow a trail necessarily. And, you know, really give you that experience of being a part of your environment, like entering the landscape in a way that roads and trails just can't provide. And, you know, the trade-off of that is that you can go two, three, four times as far in a day, um, you know, depending on terrain. So it's all about accessing different things and unlocking different opportunities in different ways, different landscapes. I mean, which really segues nicely into bike rafting, right? So it does. Oh, I mean, look at that. It's like I planned it. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's all about that. That's the cool thing about bike rafting is it unlocks another way to traverse a landscape, to experience the world we live in or, or yeah, get away. And access inaccessible. <laughs> Access and accessible, beautifully put. Yeah, and specifically to what you were talking about, really becoming immersed in your environment and, and getting away from people. This river was actually decently populated, but not annoyingly so, you know, but there was definitely people on it. Referring to the Buffalo National River that we did our trip on. Um, but I thought first, why don't you tell us about when and what your first bike rafting trip was and how it went? Okay. Yeah, my first bike rafting trip would have been January 2000, and I guess that was 2020. Yeah, it was the start to 2020. Oh, yeah, because before pandemic, the end right? of the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, every New Year's, my aunt and uncle go on a trip to Cumberland Island National Seashore, um, which is the southernmost barrier island off the coast of Georgia. Some of you may be familiar with it. Um, it's about 17 miles long. The northern half of the island is a designated wilderness area. Yeah, it's, it's run by the National Park Service. You have to take a ferry to get across. Uh, there's backcountry camping available, uh, front country camping available. And, you know, throughout the course of the history of the island, at one point it was owned by the Carnegie family of robber bearer infamy. And there are ruins of mansions and still intact mansions on the island complete with herd of about 120 feral horses and just all sorts of beautiful, beautiful things. I mean, this wonderful maritime forest and, you know, the live oaks, Spanish moss, all that great stuff. So, you know, I grew up going here every four or five years or so. And yeah, that year I brought my bike and had just purchased a pack craft and was pretty determined to explore parts of the island that I'd never seen before. And so I devised a, a quick little route that started at the southern tip of the island and basically I rode my bike from camp three or four or five miles down to the southern end and put my bike on my pack raft right there um, in the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> uh, in the sound, you know, kind of between the island and the mainland. And I timed it perfectly so that I was able to ride the tide up this uh, river inlet into um, a dock 
right there by some of the mansion ruins. It went pretty smoothly, all things considered. It was really my first time strapping my bike onto it. You know, the wake and the waves were a little bit unsettling. And, you know, there were porpoises swimming alongside of me at one time or another, which you don't think of as like a, an unnerving interaction, but it was definitely a little unsettling knowing that you're just kind of out in open water, you know, really, really vulnerable. And that yeah. there's these like large, you know, powerful yeah, animals out there able to do whatever they want to. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was just a couple hours long, but was really, really opened my mind into like, wow, I never like very few people ever see this part of this island or like this variety of it, you know, in one experience. And it was just so exciting that I wanted to start making routes anywhere I could. Awesome, dude. Well, um, so why did you want to go on a bike rafting trip when I, I mean, whenever I asked you to be on the podcast, you like were like bike rafting trip immediately. Were you already like just gearing up for one anyone? You're like, might as well make a podcast out of it. I mean, so I had always had in mind, I was like, you know, if I'm ever on an episode of Bikes to Death, it's going to be a bike rafting episode. <laughs> oh, wow. And yeah. And so you reached out to me and I was like, all right, no hesitation. This is what it's going to be. So you'd already thought about it. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. You know, you got to manifest your ideal reality, you know, make it happen. That's, that is interesting. You know, for anyone like I didn't, I, I think I follow, I follow you on Instagram. We follow each other and I see a lot of bike photos, you know, and so I like bike photos, but I think your tiny house like stood out to me and I was like, dude, this guy's building a tiny house. Like that's fucking, you know, uh, that's something that really stood out to me. Yeah. And so I contacted you, uh, totally randomly not knowing you at all. So yeah, that's kind of cool. Reality manifested. Yeah. Mm, it's good job. It's pretty good. I got to admit. <laughs> yeah. I, there's something to it, pointing your mind and effort and energy in, in a direction, you know? So, okay, let's, uh, let me punt it this way. When we did our trip on the Buffalo National River, I've never heard the words, what did they say? Everybody we passed on the river was like, never seen a bike on a kayak before, or I ain't never seen that before, or are you going to ride them bikes or, you know, every smattering of comment that you can imagine. Yeah. As and, you put it, we were the talk of the town on the river. <laughs> I mean, we yeah, every single person had something to say about us. We were, we were a spectacle. Everybody wanted to know where'd you come from? Where are you going? How'd you get here? So I just, I, again, I cued in on really how new bike rafting is period you know pack rafts are relatively new and now this idea of putting on your bike and then your bike on your boat so let's just basically what is pack rafting ryan what is it all right well since i invented pack rafts back in 2000 no um <laughs> back yeah, in 2012 uh, <laughs> no pack rafts have been around for decades and decades they've certainly gained a lot more traction recently um that's true. Because we, were, I was talking to Rebecca Rush on the last episode, and they were using pack rafts back in like nineteen, the late nineteen nineties, back yeah. in the Eco Challenge days. So that's true. They've been a, around for a while. Thank you for the clarification. I've read in like forums and stuff about people doing it, like back in the mid eighties. Yeah, you know, wow. doing all sorts of just, just groundbreaking stuff. I mean, water breaking yeah. stuff. So but I think you said it right. It's making a resurgence into like, you know, it's coming into hiking and biking culture now. And like we said, it's opening opportunities that weren't there. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, the outdoor recreation community is kind of ready for 
the adoption of something that involves this perfect blend of of gear and experience and familiarity and you know we've we now have companies and brands that are making it more accessible than ever i mean i don't know when alpaca packrafts was founded i don't know when coca pelli packrafts was founded and there are of course other companies out there doing the same stuff you know cotter has that diy kit he's making his own and you know people have been doing that forever but you know these these companies are hitting critical mass growing and able to scale and pump these things out and there's just you know thousands more of them now than there ever was 5 10 15 years ago so yeah to kind of get into like what pack rafting is um you know the idea is to make the most capable and lightweight and small packable uh flotation watercraft uh as possible and you know to be able to put it in a backpack and hike with it and be able to ford rivers that would otherwise be unfordable or you know to get to just really remote areas people have always used them for hunting for packing out you know like a deer or an elk or something um and likewise a lot of people will use them in alpine lakes for fishing and accessing a lot of uh you know spots that don't get a lot of pressure from other fishermen yeah it, those who have a fair amount of experience with bikepacking understand the importance of going lightweight and you know that carries a lot of truths into all sorts of uh recreation opportunities and paddling is certainly one of them i don't know how feasible it would be to uh to carry a kayak on a bicycle <laughs> but a pack raft i mean it's a game changer for sure yeah it's way more doable than than I had even imagined. And we'll get into that, uh, here in a little bit, but it didn't make sense in my, in my brain, but I'm definitely a believer now. Yeah. And I mean, just, you know, simply put bike rafting is carrying your raft on your back or on your bike and then carrying your bike and all of your gear on your raft and going down river. And then, you know, it, it's so much fun because you can go bike raft bike, you can go bike raft raft, you can, you know, do whatever you want to. Yeah, you're like um, a transformer. It's wonderful. <laughs> and, more than meets I, the eye. Yeah, and an important note is that the pack rafts are specifically designed to carry a load on the front. So if you inflate your pack raft and don't put anything on it or in it and just sit there and try and paddle, you're going to turn left and right and left and right and because all your weight is in the back and you just have a single fulcrum there. But by putting your load or your gear on the front, it balances it out and makes it you know, incredibly manageable, really, really just steerable and usable. I mean, you were saying time and time again, like how much better this was than kayaking. And yeah. You didn't even have a bike on your kayak. I way prefer uh, the pack rafting with a loaded down, you know, raft with a bike on it. It handles better and is way more secure than I ever felt in a kayak, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. You, you were saying you and Connor had been on some kayak trips recently. Yeah, we got we actually got into some river trips around the same time you did with COVID. It was a it's it was such a great way to I mean, this is one of the benefits I want to talk about about, you know, river trips and pack rafting is uh especially in Texas, 
you know, you get to do more primitive or remote camping away from people, whereas, you know, we don't have much public land. And so the public land we do have is overrun. But yeah, you do a river trip and you can really just pick a campsite. You're not going to see anyone. It's completely isolated. And so, yeah, we got into uh, river trips there during COVID and it was a um, just a lifesaver, you know, to be able to get away on some short river trips. So relaxing too. You just sit there and, you know, kind of sit back and let the stream river take you if you want and paddle if you want, you know, uh, different speed, different speed. The first overnight trip that I did like during COVID was a bike rafting trip of a route that I'd been planning for months out of Asheville that went through Pisgah National Forest, through Bent Creek, and then down into the Mills River area and then popped out onto the French Broad River and used uh, an overnight camping spot on the French Broad River paddle trail that's paddle in only accessible. And then I ended up paddling back to the put in right outside of Bent Creek. And yeah, so that route is, uh, I gave that one over to Craig Hardy at Rockgeist. Shout out, Craig. Better post it up, Greg. Yeah. So I, I got a sweet bike frame out of that frame bag, rather, as per his offer on your second episode with him. Yeah, man. So uh, to come up on that. Yeah, that's a good a good reminder for people out there that Greg uh, Hardy over there at Rock Guys, he has a nice collection. We talk about bikepacking.com, and, and obviously they have a huge resource. But if you're in that Western North Carolina, that's really, yeah. is that kind of his bread and butter? Absolutely. Uh, around Asheville and Brevard and all that. And so he's got some great uh, bike packing routes available on his website. And then also um, you've submitted one to him that, that I think he's working on getting up there so people can uh, check out the trip that you did, actually. Yeah, no pressure, Craig. Oh, no. I'm sure. Dude, he's busy. You know, he just bought Porcelain Rocket and they're moving into a new space and everything. So I think it's all the problem. It's a good problem to have. It's, uh, it's growing and not enough time. So I've got to say... Uh, Rock Ice was how I found out about the Bikes of Death podcast. Episode one, I was following you since then. And um, Rock Ice was absolutely formative to my experience with bikepacking. I had the idea of doing this big trip. I was living in Asheville. I knew there was a bag manufacturer in Asheville. So I went over there, met them. And Greg Hardy, Greg Clemmer, Eric Weber, they just absolutely took me under their wings and like, you know, started taking me out for rides and showing me around and like definitely showed me the ropes. And, yeah. you know, those are just such awesome people and are really, really important cornerstone for the community in Western North Carolina, the Southeast and the country as a whole. So huge props to them. Good shout out for Rock Guys and the guys over there, guys and girls. Um, couldn't agree more. I was so fortunate to just happenstance. I'd, I'd been using their product before we ever did the episode, and I I was familiar with Rock Guys and really liked them from a distance. But you know, it's whenever you really get to meet Greg and get to know him and understand his company and his guiding principles. And I mean, he's just a really it's a really solid group of people, and it's a purposeful business. You know, like they're really um, doing things very purposefully, keeping the community first, and and always it always seems like everything they do is filtered through the lens of community and customer first you know and they're nailing it as far as i'm concerned yeah i mean emmy who works there she organizes you know the mountain haulers social rides and the she does a coffee outside you know wednesday morning i think if that's still the same uh weekday morning but yeah she was a, a huge 
huge part of my experience with, you know, meeting other cyclists and, you know, mountain bikers and stuff in the Asheville area. And she works with them now. And it's just, yeah, the, the people there are just absolutely top notch. Let's uh, segue back to pack rafting and I, and let's give of I wanted to share like where people can get them and and give some different options you know and I'll use our trip as an example you were helpful there's um you know Cocapelli like you mentioned there's alpaca rafts like you mentioned um you also mentioned diypackraft.com Connor who went with us he got one of their kits that you build you know they send you all the pieces and uh, how to build it and he's an engineer and he's the perfect guy to tackle it but his iron broke and he wasn't able to finish it in time for the trip. And I can report that yesterday he had finished it and took it for its first test drive no and, way. or test float. And uh, it worked. Yeah. He said, uh, you know, it had a couple like small leaks or something like really slow. So he needs to get it going a little bit. But I think just for people listening, I think that what I'll do is get like a full report from Connor on that experience. So anyone who's wanting to do a DIY approach, um, that was kind of the cool thing is he was doing DIY. You had your own that you already bought. And then what I did is I reached out to backcountrypackrafts.com. You can find them at backcountrypackrafts.com. And I rented a couple for Sarah and I, and that, to me was a great option because you know these pack rafts are a little pricey i mean you're going to spend 800 plus on them they're an investment and there's also a little bit it seems like uh, there's some lead times on some of them so they can be hard to get on specific uh pack rafts very high demand the very last high year demand. especially which which also is like why we should do a podcast because there's so many people i'm like dang you know that's another thing i learned is how in demand these things are yeah, so you know the backcountry pack rafts. I uh, got to give them a shout out because they they donated the boats. I was curious to know what that process would be like, and I didn't want and I wanted to go pack rafting. And I didn't want to spend a thousand dollars to find out. I can say now that I've done it. Uh, Sarah and I are both selling things. Uh, she sold one kayak, and uh, we've been selling stuff to like buy a pack raft. Yeah, Sarah told me like a couple days after we got back from the trip that she was selling her kayaks. I'm like, going for it. We're all in. When I told Connor about this podcast and I said pack rafting or bike rafting, his uh, his eyes lit up like Christmas. Oh, and I wanted to mention, sorry, before we move on, there's a Facebook group that actually you sent me that's called like pack raft buy and sell or sell and buy. Um, that's that's pack raft or something. Use pack rafts, yeah. Seems like a great resource. I didn't get one off there, but they're in hot demand. So you gotta, you gotta be quick. A lot of the users there are in Europe. So if you're a listener in Europe, then the odds are probably in your favor, but uh, it's, it's a great place to um, look at what the secondhand market is like and hopefully score a good deal. Yeah. A lot of people buy one and then immediately realize they want to upgrade. I'm definitely in that camp. I would love to upgrade to a new pack raft pretty soon. You know, one with maybe a removable spray skirt and a, a T-zip for the you know storage compartment inside the hull. You got to stay on top of it, but the opportunities are out there. Real quick, the, you know, one of the things I realize is it's so new that I don't think everyone has decided on what to call it. But what do you call it? So I tend to refer to it just as bike rafting on the whole. 
which is vague in that it doesn't specify whether or not you're doing an overnight trip. A lot of people will do just day trips for bike rafting, and that simplifies things a great deal. Bike pack rafting is certainly more specific and you know specifies that you're doing one, two, infinity days <laughs> with your setup. But um, I, I like just the brevity of bike rafting because I think it really it doesn't blur the line between bike packing and pack rafting. It's very clear that there's a bike, there's a raft, and you got to figure it out from there. That's my preference. I have to agree. At first, I was liking bike pack rafting, and then I decided that everything is bike pack something, and so let's just simplify it and call it bike rafting. And it's, see, I, as I was looking at other you know, blogs or even websites that sold them, oftentimes they were referring to it as bike rafting. And so I think I can get on board with that one too. Let's talk about some of the different types. Like if someone was going to buy a pack raft or even rent one, you know, what should they be looking for? You just touched on a few and, and, you know, maybe using yours, like what yours doesn't have and what you would like to have is a good way to answer that question. But one thing that I learned about was self-bailing versus not self-bailing, which I think is important to <laughs> mention because I ended up with a non-self-bailing one, which essentially means that the bottom of the, uh, the boat is completely sealed up. Um, water can get in and you have to dump it out with a water bottle or something or get out and dump it over. But what Sarah got was a self-bailing, which means it has holes at the bottom, which means that the water is going to be inside all the time, but it always stays at the same level essentially and you never have to bail it out. So when we were doing it, it was like in the 40s and raining and you know, she was sitting in a puddle of water like the whole day, uh, cold water. Yeah. And he, so what other things, I mean, that's, that's going to come down like personal preference and what kind of, you know, I, I would just do more research unless you have some more comments on that. But what other types of, um, you mentioned like T-zips, that's an important one. I would say like the three, like most primary features in a raft are going to be, is it self-failing or not? Um, which I would say most of the ones used in biograph are not self-failing. Self-failing is generally a like whitewater specific feature. And if you are doing whitewater with your bike, bless you, you know what you're doing more than I can tell you. But that being said, if you get a secondhand raft or if you're borrowing one, you know, that may be the raft that you have and it's perfectly functional and it's not going to detract from your experience too much, especially if the weather's nice. And then, you know, other important features are whether or not it has a spray deck or spray skirt. Again, more useful in a whitewater setting. I wouldn't mind being able to do some more class three type stuff uh, with my pack raft. And then, of course, the, the T-zip, the storage compartment inside the hull or like the inflatable part of the raft. So someone somewhere in the world has invented an airtight zipper and you can store dry bags and you know non-dry bags inside of your pack raft so that you don't have to have your entire bike and load and everything on top, making you a little bit less stable and a little bit just more top heavy in general. So for a beginner, if you can pay the extra 150 bucks for that T-zip, absolutely go for it. Um, spray deck or spray skirt, not necessarily necessary. 
And um, we would have liked to have had one because it was cold and rainy and we were wet the whole time. And so we would have all paid extra to have a spray deck uh, and spray skirt, uh, but we didn't. But yeah, that's or if you're in, I guess, some crazier rapids. Uh, yeah, those would be good things to consider. And the T-zip thing threw blew me away that you could like shove your shit inside your raft. But we all had T-zips and you didn't. And yours, and it's worth mentioning that I mean, you—I don't know, you—you you tell me, but it seemed like you hand, you didn't ever tip over or nothing, you know. I mean, you handled just fine, so it can be done. But we'll- it was all right. So all three of you had the pack raft that I want. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to put it frankly, um, you know, you, you all had an alpaca caribou, which is, in my opinion, the standard for pack rafting. I own a Cocopelli Rogue which is fantastic inch level. I mean, I got it on the Cyber Monday sale in 2019. It was great price, you know, minimal features. It got me on the water and I've used the heck out of it. And I loved every single minute, except for a few of the minutes that we shared together um, (laughs) in that raft. Um, For a lot of people, it'll be a get what you can type scenario, especially for people who, you know, are starting out in the sport. Yeah, I would love to have the T-zip. I would love to also have a removable spray skirt because just like Sarah, I was sitting in water for the majority of the trip. I had my uh, 40 ounce clean canteen that I was using to bail out water constantly. Every single rapid afterwards, you guys would look back and see me sitting there dumping like 10 or 12 bottlefuls (laughs) of water and I was just soaked and freezing and the wind's blowing down the corridor of the river and it's cloudy and, you know, you're getting fresh cold water inside all the time. Certainly a, a warm weather activity if possible. <laughs> yeah. To put it mildly. All right. Yeah. Those are all good, good tips. Um, the only other thing I would add to it that I noticed uh, that's a nice feature is I mean, you're going to have areas to strap your bike and gear on the front of the pack. I noticed that Connors had uh, some loops uh, closer back to where the the paddler would be. And I like that because he could volley strap things that he wanted access to, like food or, you know, whatever he had there. Mine didn't have that. So that's the only other thing that I, I would note is like, look for attachment points where you might want them. Let's uh, talk about route planning a little bit because whenever you're talking about bike rafting, uh, it brings in some different things. Water, for example. Um, So checking water levels is going to be crucial to uh, being able to plan a route. And, you know, I can say for the route that we did, based on water levels, we had two routes picked out, one up river and one down. And and you have to go to the USGS uh, website, I believe, and um, you can get water levels there at various points along along a river. And um, I guess you could go on and Google and figure out how to do that. But, you know, it adds a different element because originally we were looking at New, uh, New Mexico. It's like, well, there's no water. Uh, where actually, you think that there was water, but maybe there wasn't. It's, it's debatable for that specific section. There are like rafting and guiding companies that go there. Yeah. And do that section. And the short stretch of the Rio Grande we were going to do just north of Las Cruces, we were looking at doing something actually off of the monumental loop. You know, it's, it's just below two different dams. So they have the option to, you know, dam release water and make 
the Rio Grande is below there, very navigable. And somehow these, you know, outfitters coordinate with those dam releases to flow that. And yeah, uh, it can be done. <laughs> I want, uh, this is going to be fun. Matt Mason, who is one of the creators of the Monumental Loop, I don't know if you saw this on Instagram or not, but I guess I didn't realize it, but the last three episodes, I've given him a shout out. And yeah, he's, he's getting some heavy rotation. Yeah, and I didn't I did mean to, but I guess he's been on my mind. I've been thinking he's about that a, a lot. Yeah, he is a great guy. Why, why wouldn't I think about him? But it's funny because I was like, well, how long are we going to keep this streak going? And of course, we had to keep him going. But this time, I'm going to say that we got some bad beta from Matt Mason. That's right, Matt. I'm calling you out. Just kidding. Matt is a uh, Matt's a through hiker too uh, slash desert rat, and so I don't know if he knows as much about the water. I don't know. He actually, I know for a fact he told me he doesn't know <laughs> much about it. Honestly, like I I really love uh, Northwest Arkansas, and I've always wanted to float the Buffalo National River. For people who don't know, it, it was the first ever national river, dedicated national river, and uh, it's quite beautiful kind of getting ahead of myself and I want to make sure I just put this out there. So talked about water levels, just, a, you know, ride with GPS, which is what I use to create all my routes on rivers. You use the draw line feature and you can, mm -hmm. you know, do it that way. And for planning, I think, you know, it's important to just keep in mind that you'll probably travel about three to four miles per hour. And I actually looked at our speed and we went 4.2 miles an hour on, on average. So we were, we were pretty fast. I'm surprised it was that high. Yeah. Cause we, the current must've been pretty decent because we weren't paddling too, too hard. Yeah. Any other tips that you can think of for just, you know, water levels, keep in mind how far you can travel in a, a certain amount of time. What else? Anything? Yeah. Else? I mean, the, the ideal scenario is finding a section of a river that is popular with paddlers if you have paddling experience and you know, you know, good paddling areas that has, you know, class two, class one slash flat water that also has decent gravel and or single track nearby, then you're golden. You know, that's really like the, the sweet spot is being able to find that. And I looked out at that with, you know, having Pisgah National Forest right next to the French Broad River. Mm -hmm. French Broad is in that section, pretty far upstream, pretty slow, pretty flat. And yeah, if you can find that, then it's worth driving an extra hour or two to get a route that's going to meet those criteria. But other than that, you want to ride upstream and float downstream and hopefully <laughs> cross your own path at some point. Yeah, uh, th those, those are worth mentioning. Yeah, you want your paths to cross. If you can get a section of paddling that has campsites with river access, then even better because you can hit those spots that only paddlers can get to and yeah so it's it's a lot of fun to kind of look at look at your maps with a different perspective you know follow the blue lines and you know the the paddling has to come first really i think yeah. bikes are a little bit more flexible you know the road conditions and all that aren't quite as uh, as important as the the water levels so yeah exactly it's going to be yeah. seasonal in a lot of areas and you just have to be okay with that and go with the flow 
Yeah, that's, it comes with the territory. Let's segue into talking about our trip that we did. Uh, obviously, we teased it a bunch, but I thought it would be a good way to just kind of go through, talk about our trip a little bit, and maybe just you know some things that we learned along the way, because you're always learning. And I learned a ton. The entire trip was a learning experience for me. I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, you can't. Well, I don't want to say you can't, but it just seems like that's what you do. It's always a learning process. I'm going to pull up our route so we can see it while we're talking. But we essentially, you know, it was a time issue, mostly on my end. But we put together a three-day bike rafting trip that covered about, it was originally a 25-mile bike ride with one substantial climb and one substantial downhill, uh, which brought us right down to the Buffalo National River at the end of the day. Uh, So in the morning, we would be able to put in right there from camp. And that next day we floated, what did we float? 10.6 miles. And uh, day three was going to be a a raft only. And it turned into a raft. And then we hopped back on our bikes, which was kind of cool. It was, it showed me another level of, hey, that's an opportunity I didn't consider where it opened up. Hey, you know, because, well, we'll just say real quick, like we were kind of running low on time, X, Y, Z plan. It was raining more. It was raining more. (laughs) We were thunder. (laughs) Our fingers and toes were frozen. Bailout options are a really important consideration that I should add. Being stuck in a section of river where you cannot get out is really not a great scenario to be in. So it does take some careful planning to, you know, to be aware of, okay, there's a road that goes reasonably close to the water here. And uh, that was absolutely not the first time that I've had to bail out of some water in order to get, you know, to a safer or more comfortable situation. Yeah. We'll touch on that again. Let's start on day one. And uh, like I said, it was a biking, the bike portion. And uh, we uh, let's start with how we packed our bikes. So why don't you go first? You had a little bit more experience than I did, but you were actually packing up for the first time on a new bike and everything. So how'd you pack yours? Yeah. So about a year ago, I, you know, having used my pack raft on my bike a couple of times, you know, the obvious issue is, okay, putting all your camping gear on a bike is one thing, adding a five pound pack raft, you know, a six foot paddle and a personal flotation device creates its own situation. Um, so the classic or default or simplest method is to have a backpack, throw the pack raft in it. The pack raft is designed to be attached to a backpack in most uses. And the paddles generally break down into four sections instead of just two. PFD can, you know, is usually pretty light and can be added on top of something without too much issue. But yeah, so about a year ago, I bought a, uh, a wonderful little T-rack to go over my rear wheel specifically to put my pack raft on top of. And it's got some um, attachment points where I can add some many things cages and put some dry bags on the sides of that to really um, just make it simpler and be able to carry a lot more than just my regular seat pack would allow. And so I brought my T-Rack along. It worked on my last Fargo. I was going to pop it on top of this Fargo, no problem. I show up around noon, start packing my bike together before you guys get there and realized, wow, this rack doesn't fit this bike because this bike has a larger tire clearance and I have a larger tire than I did on my last Fargo. And 
oh no, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I, I ended up actually being the only one of us four who used to backpack. So I've actually never put my pack raft in a backpack before, but in a pinch, it was definitely the simplest, easiest option. And given that it was you know, reasonably cool and cold at some times, uh, the backpack really didn't bother me too much. But anyone who's used a backpack on a bike knows that in warmer weather, it's not ideal. So uh, ideally, you'll be able to uh, strap everything on either to your uh, handlebars or either with a T-rack or a really large uh, seat pack or something like that. Yeah. So what I did was I actually used my uh, Rock Guys Bar Jam, which is their front harness uh, system. And that that's what I use for everything. I asked Greg, I'm like, hey, do you think this will work for a uh, pack raft? He's like, I think so. And as I can report that's back, that's what I've always used. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, it worked. It worked. Like I'm so impressed by that thing. It, it really does work so well. But I was able to put my, you know, the pack raft, they roll up pretty small. They really do. It's basically just like a front roll. And then your paddles break up into four sections. So I put the two like round, you know, the parts you would hold with your hand. I don't know what you call it, the shaft. Um, wrap that in the front roll with the pack raft. And then for my setup, what I had to do for the first time is I got uh, anything cages for the uh, fork mounts and was able to shift, you know, what would be my sleep system that would typically go there into the forks, which left, I should mention that whenever, uh, well, we were all kind of packing these for the first time uh, yeah. <laughs> in the parking lot That was uh, a at scene. 12 o'clock. Yeah, it was fun, man. Uh, yeah, there'll be some pictures on the website. In the but, rain. Um, yeah, it's you know it's starting to rain and oh my gosh, it was cold and rainy and it's kind of like we'd consider we really putting this? off the start until the next day. Yeah, we could have turned it into a a, a two day, a one day ride and a one day raft. What do you think? Are you are you glad we did the three day or do you think you would have preferred to do the two day? Now looking back on it, now looking back on it, I'm really glad we did the three day. On the third day, I was maybe not as convinced. <laughs> um, yeah, I, by the end of it, I was pretty, uh, pretty beat, pretty worn out, pretty spent. But you know, type two fun. It's it was a blast, and I'm really glad that we got to spend as much time together as possible. Thanks, dude. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad. Uh, it's definitely a type two fun situation where, I mean, in it, I knew I was having fun. But anytime you're cold and wet, like all day long. You know, it's 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 harder to keep spirits up, but I'll say we all did a good job. I mean, we did we made the best made lemons out of lemonade or lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> having a uh, backpacked about seven thousand miles in the last five years, and having bike packed just over two thousand miles in the last seven years, that was probably the least prepared I've ever been on a trip. I didn't bring an insulation layer. I genuinely thought it was going to be just sunny and warm on Saturday and Sunday. So I had like my women's running shorts and like my little button up short sleeve shirt, my sunglasses and my cap. And I thought I was just going to be set for all the paddling. thought the rain was going to be done after Friday. I, I mean, I froze my ass off, frankly. I was not a happy camper, uh, <laughs> but we had a fire both nights. And I think that's a huge credit to us, you know, in, in rainy circumstances. Yeah, we'll talk about that because the fires were definitely lifesavers. I always get sidetracked so i wanted to finish real quick because i'm really proud of where i put my the fat what do they call the the paddle part the part that goes in the water the paddle part of the paddle 
the paddle part of the paddle. You're going to have to go on Instagram to see on the website for the you know this uh, episode. It was a work um, of art. It was a work of art, and, I'll, and all credit to Volley Straps. But I essentially uh, Volley strapped them to the pack that was on my fork there. Um, I just freaking cinched two Volley straps around it, and it went on the whole time. I thought for sure it was going to fly off and kill me or somebody else, but uh, it worked the whole time. That was my biggest challenge to overcome for packing by far. The second of which was where to put that PFD. I thought about wearing it. I thought about leaving it um, in the van, which I don't recommend doing, and I did take it. And uh, ultimately, it just kind of volley strapped it on around the back of the seat pack or, or seat bag, saddle bag. And uh, yeah, it, it worked fine. I don't think anybody's shit fell off or anything. I mean, everybody. I mean, day one, every one of us had to make at least one or two adjustments. Adjustments? I didn't see anything falling off. Yeah, maybe a little bit. After the first 10 miles, we were dialed. Okay, yeah. What did you think about Arkansas, man? That was your first time there. What was your impressions of Arkansas? Yeah, so I, you know, I've, I've been waiting for my first experience in Arkansas after hearing about the high country loop and, you know, all the awesome single track going around in that area. And while our route was, you know, strictly gravel and asphalt, I was pretty blown away by the Ozarks and just the East Coast just has that subtle beauty. You know, you've got to have an appreciation for the biology and just the, it's, it's just not quite as in your face as the West coast. And, um, man, Arkansas was clean. Those, uh, those cliffs and the canyons going down the Buffalo river were one or 200 feet tall at times. And, um, it was just so easy to appreciate. The one thing that really stood out about Arkansas was the lack of litter. It was just such a clean, clean weekend. I think we found one piece of litter the entire route, Connor picked up and started using as a baler and like, it was just a, a water bottle floating in the river. And that was it. Yeah. Um, just pristine, clean, beautiful smelling. Uh, just Arkansas was so fresh, highly recommended to anyone with the opportunity worth a 10 and a half hour drive. Boom. That's a, that's high praise. Yeah. I couldn't, we, we both had about a 10, 10 and a half hour drive and, uh, everybody knows I'm a big fan of Arkansas and, and part of, I mean, you're getting out into really rural areas where there aren't that many people. And with that means, you know, less light pollution, less trash, less people, less traffic, all that stuff, all the things that we, we like day one, after we got the bikes, the packs on the bikes from there it was just about pedaling and being cold and wet. <laughs> <laughs> essentially there was a uh and we're, i want to mention i forgot to mention earlier that i'm gonna put this route out as well because the route went it was a great route um there's not a lot of bike rafting routes out there so um if people want to go and do the route that we did this is a very doable very beautiful no trash no people just a great great route so yeah i mean it, it says here it was 21 miles day one and that was all the pedaling that we really did with the exception of the bail, but that's not part of the route. It could be though. It's a great, like the, it should be on there as a bailout. I think, I think why not? You know, we certainly used it, but yeah. So the route is basically typified by a huge climb. Let's see how far is this climb? Should we go all the way? We'll go all the way up 5.7 miles climbing 1500 feet. What did you think about the climbing? It was a beautiful hike. 
<laughs> yeah, the, I mean, there was there was one stretch of that where I swear the grade was like like forty or fifty percent. I mean, it was it got pretty steep at one point, but it was all dirt and gravel roads. We didn't have hardly any cars on there at all, and I mean the the views were just beautiful, pastoral, rural some of the coolest cows and yaks and goats and just beautiful stuff. Um, yeah. Those classic yeah. rolling hills in the Ozarks. It was great. Hey, eh? I mean, you, you imagine like a beautiful, um, you know, green pasture of flowers and everything. And like, that's where we were the whole time. It was springtime and we were getting the showers instead of the sunshine, but you could tell it was, it was a really beautiful. What stood out to me on that day one was the end. The day went so well, but man, it got down, you know, later on in the day, we started late and the temperature started dropping and we had this descent that's about three and a half miles down to camp, max grade 0.8%. And I looked at it and our, our top speed or my top speed was 39 miles an hour. That's all? Well, I had my brakes on because it was so cold. And it was raining so hard. You posted the video or the picture of me at the end. I mean, I was just obliterated because the rain was like stinging your face. I couldn't see and you couldn't feel your hands because they were so cold and wet. I was worried I was going to eat shit. I was, so yeah, 39 was all. How fast did you go? I don't know, but it was a ripping descent for sure. So yeah, for, for reference, the descent was all paved for everyone. So I'll say like not a single car passed me on the descent. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I let you guys go ahead because I had to like either make an adjustment or go to the bathroom or something, but I wanted to like have that road to myself. I, it was the first big descent on my new bike that I've done in months and months and months. So I was looking forward to it. I was very aware of the potential for me to, uh, to wipe out wet conditions and everything, but I took it pretty hard and the rain was, like you said, stinging in the eyes. You got to do like the tightest squint possible, you know, and just barely be able to see. But it was a blast. It was worth the climb for sure. It was fun. It hurt a little bit, but what's fun without a little bit of pain too? And we got to give a shout out to the uh, to the gas station up there at the top of the climb, like right before the descent. You know, the name of the town or the, you know, the hamlet or the name of the store even um, escapes me right now. Was it, it was like Woodstock or something, maybe? Crom, uh, Crompton. Crompton. Com- Let's Compton. go with Compton. Compton. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because we went straight out of Compton. Yeah, there was this outfitter in the gas station. JB Trading Co., yep. Huge shout out to JB Trading. It was an unbelievably well-stocked outfitter. I mean, tents, sleeping pads, sleeping beds, backpacks, you name it. They had pack rafts for sale in their outfitter on our route was mind blowing. <laughs> we looked in the window and saw those and we're like, what? Yeah, that's great. I, I picked up a, a rain, a frog tog rain suit that had its own story, but it did serve me well through the trip. It was like three sizes too big and, but it, it worked and it got a tear in the ass the first time I tried to get on my bike. So I had like wet. You were the, the driest of all of us. Frog togs with holes in them still work better than <laughs> yeah, I- no frog togs. <laughs> We have to talk about where we slept. So, I mean, again, just finished up, you know, the long day in the rain, cold, and we were going to a designated campsite with firewood, maybe, and we cross a bridge and Connor says, 
you know, we could sleep under the bridge and the bridge was going over the Buffalo National River. So we would be right there. Turned out to be like the there perfect- There was a put-in right there. There was a put-in right there. So that's where we questionably, illegally, actually, it's not a question. We know it was illegal because the next morning we got a visit from one of the park rangers who let us know that we were illegally camping, but he was actually like super cool with us. And, you know, we made sure to leave no trace and uh, he understood. I mean, we were cold and at first he was confused. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't understand how we had like rafts and bikes. There were, you know, four bikes, four rafts and four of us. And he couldn't quite put that together. So I will say not my proudest moment as a uh, public lands user. It was, land essentially underneath the National Park Service. And we were, frankly, at the end of that descent, we were in pretty rough shape. We were shivering pretty solidly. Frankly, we just, in a moment of weakness, didn't feel like making the two-mile climb up to the campsite. But for anyone doing this route, please don't make the mistake that we made. And um, you know, hopefully you'll be in better weather and it won't be an issue anyway. Please push on to that campsite, that campground that's on the route. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was, we all decided that was the smartest decision for us. It's not one that I would advocate for ever, but I'll also be honest that we prioritize being dry and warm and having a fire and, you know, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend it, but do you think it was the right decision? Ooh, that's a really tough question. Um, I think I'm actually going to say, no, I don't think it was the right decision. I doubt that we would have had a fire if we went to the campground. Um, we would have been really cold. I think we would have been all right though. You know, it was certainly the more comfortable. It was the safer option. It's hard to say objectively how desperate we actually were, you know, because we didn't face the consequences of what it would have been like to go in an area that doesn't have this large dry section where we had dry firewood, you know, that was protected underneath that overpass. So it's, it's pretty hard to say that, but I, I really try not to do things like that. And yeah, I, I hope I don't have to again. I, yeah, I don't like to do it either. I don't know. I think you make the decisions that you're comfortable with in the moment that you just have to live with it, which we have to do. And I think what you learn is to be better prepared so that, you know, you don't find yourself in situations like that. And, and I'm okay being honest with that because we all learn how to do things better. And I know that none of us were prepared to be in the rain all night. Um, and into the next day, like we just, the weather that we got and what we prepared for didn't match up. And so we were ill prepared. Would we have died? I don't think we would have died, but we could have cuddled up. Yeah, we could. Exactly. I mean, we could have got naked and cuddled up and it would have been fine, but, uh, we weren't ready for an orgy yet. But the good thing that came out of that was we invented sleeping in your pack raft. I don't know if we invented it. I feel like but- we did. God damn it. Uh, you know, I, so, I mean, I specifically have seen people do that. So, all right, fine. They didn't have bikes with them, but they were still sleeping on them. Were you the one that thought of that? I think I might've mentioned it as a possibility. I may have had a, a degree of, of kidding about it, but it ended up being an excellent <laughs> idea. Um, certainly better than the uh, quarter inch closed cell phone sleeping pad that I had with me. Yeah, exactly. And as I found out the second night. so i mean to just articulate this a little bit better there's two ways to do this 
I slept in mine the way uh, a raft would be in, where it's a bottom down, and then I put pads in the open part of on the bottom, and it kind of just like cradled me a little bit, like like a cradle, um, like a but hammock Sarah, almost, like a hammock. I'm a hammock sleeper, but like Sarah yeah. and Connor, I think I, I don't and know myself. You did all like flipped it upside down. Yeah. Yeah. Like a bed. Like a bed. I guess I like to be curled up and other people like to stretch out. But either way works. I think, you know, as a point, you either one seems to work. And Sarah actually on the second night, we had a perfect campsite and she slept so good that she was like, fuck it, I'm doing it again. Yeah. She said she slept better than her bed at home. Yeah, she did. That is high praise for a pastor. And she has a nice bed. I've slept in it before. Shh. Don't tell my mom. (laughs) <laughs> don't tell sarah no oh <laughs> that would be funny <laughs> you what <laughs> oh man all right well let's get back to our continued journey okay um for i guess we'll just say for anyone listening yeah we i had to go pick up my daughter yeah and so we're gonna we're continuing our conversation um we left off kind of around on day one so i think it was a good place to pick up on the morning of day two yeah, and like we said, we camped under the bridge. Mixed feelings about it, and uh, woke up the next day. Had our encounter with the park ranger, who definitely confirmed we were in the wrong spot. But shall we say no, no harm, no foul? I I would say no harm, no foul. Yeah, no um, harm, no foul. <clears throat> it was a close call, but we yeah we did our best to mediate the repercussions from our actions. And I will say the you know the very first principle of leave no trace is plan and prepare. And that is where our failure point was. We hadn't quite fully planned and prepared for um, the conditions that we were experiencing. And I think that we had a little bit of work that we could have done myself, especially to, you know, just be better prepared for, you know, what we were volunteering to do. You know, we put ourselves in that situation and, you know, we have an obligation to to accept uh, yeah the repercussions from our actions. Yeah, um, but you know, never a failure, always a lesson. A hundred percent, my friend. That's a w- good way to put it. And I'm glad you brought up that it's all about preparation and preparedness. And that's what I said is like, I admit to some shortcomings. I don't think it was just you. I think all of us learn from that experience. And and that's when experiences aren't wasted when you learn from them. And everybody's going to fail. Everybody's going to make mistakes. Everybody's going to come up short here or there. And that's the important thing. And the lesson that I always try to keep with me personally is that it is about how you learn from that that defines that experience if you choose not to learn from it and you you repeat it that's when i think you know you have a problem you know and i think it's it's okay to make mistakes like we we need to be allowed i think we need to be allowed to make mistakes in life and bikepacking and all that but you're gonna have to pay the consequences luckily for us there weren't really any too much but we did get an opportunity to learn a lesson and we should take that opportunity to learn grow and do better next time and i think all of us are the type of people that that will hopefully you know yeah so day one It was our first time, at least for three of us, first time ever putting our pack rafts on a bike. Day two was three of our first times ever putting bikes and all of our gear on a pack raft. Yeah. Oh, how the (laughs) turntables. Yeah, let's give some tips on how to do it. 
I'll say, you know, the number one thing that absolutely blew my mind was the T-zip handle. Like we mentioned, it's a big opening in the vessel so you can cram as much of your gear as you can put in there. Take it off your bike, take your bags off your bike and put it in there. It's completely waterproof as long as you don't puncture it. That blew my mind and really made a lot of sense and made it a lot easier to then put your bike on uh, the pack raft. You know, you just had less to deal with. That was a benefit I had because I had the T-zip, but you didn't. So um, you had a little bit more stuff to overcome. A little finesse, maybe. Yeah, so basics when it comes to, you know, converting your uh, your setup into rafting mode, just about essential to remove your front wheel. <laughs> um, and it sure helps to remove your back wheel as well. So, you know, even if you've got through axles, you don't have quick release, it's worth it to take the time to go ahead and remove both your wheels just because you are getting your center of balance over the middle of your pack raft. I was stubborn on this trip and, you know, only took my front wheel off. And that definitely affected my experience a little bit. One of the other main repercussions of that is that if you have one of your wheels on, it's of course going to be sticking out some, and that limits your range of motion with your paddle. And, you know, by narrowing your profile down a lot, that really, really helps your navigation and just your general range of motion. Yeah, it keeps you a little more compact if you have to go through tighter areas, just less stuff on the front to get caught on trees or whatever. Yeah. Which I did get caught on a tree in the first. <laughs> yeah, just about immediately. <laughs> it was like the first little ripper we went through. Oh, that was funny. Ryan was like, uh, what are we doing with this fool? Yeah, that was one of my favorite moments. Sarah got in my way. And I'm a gentleman instead of ramming her, I went around her and got myself into the tree. But it was pretty funny. I was like first mile into the trip, completely wrapped up in a tree. The water's like piling up around me and trying to push me. And I'm just kind of stuck. And I'm thinking to myself, actually, I was yelling. I remember I yelled out. I was like, I'm an inflatable boat in a tree. I'm gonna <laughs> Yeah, it was before like, you really had the opportunity to like test the durability of the raft and like the the maneuverability of it. You know, we had like just put in like 15 minutes ago and here you are like completely stopped and stationary in flowing water uh, with this, you know, this tree overhanging the the river there. I legitimately thought that I was going to puncture the raft yeah. and that was going to be the going down. <laughs> Luckily, that was like the most dramatic thing that happened, the whole float at least. So I'm trying to think, oh, I wanted to tell about your inflatable thing. I think that's worth mentioning. Oh, absolutely. So if you buy a pack raft, probably going to come with an inflation bag, uh, which is like a large, um, it's almost silk, but I'm sure it's some, some other synthetic material that if you look it up, you'll, you'll find out what it is, but it's, you know, it'll weigh probably three or four ounces. And it's this large bag that will screw onto your air valve of your pack raft and you kind of shake it open and then, you know, twist the two handles shut and you can kind of squeeze and force that air into your raft several times and uh, and slowly inflate it. But you can also purchase these handy dandy handheld electronic, basically inflation air pumps. I know Cocopelli sells one that's branded by them. Uh, I have an off-brand one. I don't know if Alpaca has one of their own, but essentially it'll fit in the palm of your hand. It weighs six ounces. So really, really minimal weight cost that usually run between 25 and 35 or 40 bucks. And they will inflate your pack raft all the way up in, you know, 
45 seconds or more. One charge, it's a USB rechargeable piece. Uh, one charge, you can probably inflate your pack raft about 25 or 30 times. So I realized pretty early on that dealing with the inflation bag is not something I wanted to mess with. Having that air pump was just absolutely awesome. We inflated all four of our pack raft both days with that thing. And it was just so handy having that on hand. And almost equally as important or more important was the fire starting capabilities that it offered. Yeah. Um, that came in clutch. Yeah. Especially with some of the, the wet wood that we were trying to burn, you know, right, exactly. using that thing um, essentially as just a, an air blower to provide oxygen to the fire was such a game changer. I mean, we grew that thing really, really quickly. Yeah, man, it was pretty fun. There's a good video of Sarah. Uh, I'm drying out my bum on the fire and uh, you you like light up your uh, your inflator and uh, burn my ass a little bit. <laughs> and there's Sarah got a video of it. <laughs> I didn't mind too much, man. We were so cold at the end. Like it was pretty yeah. brutal. Yeah. So day two, we weren't on our bikes at all. You know, we did looks like, like 10 miles on the river and, 10 so, and a half miles. Yeah, we were we're moving our arms and shoulders some, but for the most part, our heart rate's pretty low and we're down there. It's raining, it's cloudy, the wind's blowing. And, you know, I was sitting in a puddle for the majority of the day and um, I was I was pretty shaken, pretty chilled. So let's talk about clothes. I was wearing wool. I mean, I wore, you know, like tried to wear some rain shield stuff that, you know, will work for a period of time, but it's not going to keep you dry forever. I had on wool base layers, basically just a wool long sleeve shirt and a wool uh, underwear. And I mean, I wasn't like super warm, but I do think that it, you know, wool does what wool does. It keeps you relatively warm, even though it's wet. Yeah. What were you wearing? So I also had my wool leggings on, absolutely essential. And I had a synthetic hooded shirt, essentially base layer. And that's pretty much what I wore. I had my rain pants over that and my rain jacket over that. But of course, when you're sitting in water, the rain pants aren't going to do much. I did not bring an insulation layer at all. No down jacket, no, no nothing. And that was absolutely my, my fatal mistake for the trip. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was, yeah, that made, made it more difficult for me to get warm once we got to camp. We suffered well. It was pretty rough. The takeaway there is, especially if you're going to do something like this, you're going to be wet all day. And if there's a chance of rain and some of raining on you all day, it's essential to have like a warm, dry clothes that you can get into at night. I think I actually did pretty okay in that regard. Yeah, um, I'd say all three of you did great. <laughs> yeah, I think my only failure from a clothing aspect was I brought a uh, rain jacket, but I, and I have, I own several rain pants and in my mind I was thinking, oh, I don't need those. I don't know why. I, I can relate though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In hindsight though, I'm like, that was a dumb thing to do, but yeah, lesson learned. JB Outfitter in Compton represent. They hooked you up with the frog togs. <laughs> yeah. Those were a fashion statement for sure. Especially whenever I've been over every time and you could see all my junk. Yeah, the first time you you got on your bike, you just ripped the pants straight through. <laughs> well, it's funny they're like three sizes too big, and I still wrap rip the inseam out. Yeah, it's tough finding the right uh, rain pants that you can use on your bike. Still, I use cycling specific rain pants, and they really do make a difference for the range of motion. I have some. I was a dummy and didn't bring them, but yeah, next time. So I wanted to talk about 
the rapids that we had and what the water was like for perspective. Yeah, why don't you tell us? You're more a water guy than I am. Okay. So the section of the Buffalo River we did was, um, you know, just class one and class two rapids. And that's going to vary a little bit based on the water levels. Luckily, there was a fair amount of rain that week leading up to our trip. And that actually allowed uh, us to do this section that we would not have been able to do otherwise. We had a backup route that we thought at one point we were going to have to do. So, um, yeah, some relatively mild class two rapids, nothing terribly sustained, pretty minimal risks, a couple spots where you got to do a, a quick tight turn to avoid either a, um, a rock or just a, a tree overhanging, but no strainers in this section. What's a strainer? Tell the uninitiated. Yeah. So a strainer is just like a, a down tree or some, some type of debris that goes all the way across the river that you have to then portage around or carry your craft out of the river to get around it. So yeah, all things considered, this was a, a pretty mild trip, but it was plenty fun. Yeah, it's it's bike rafting friendly, I would say. I'll say this again. I've done some kayaking. Um, I've done some white water rafting with a guide and all that. But I mean, this for me handled way better than any kayak I've ever been in. You know, the class one, class two rapids that we did, there was one section we came to, I know you'll remember it, where there was a huge group that all portaged around yeah. uh, this class two section was in a nice S. And I don't think any of us gave it a second thought. We're just like, we're going, you know. We didn't blink. Yeah, there was probably like 15 or 20 people there, you know, either stopped and they decided to have lunch there or they were just portaging around it and continuing. And these are people who had passed us earlier too. And yeah. we were like, oh, funny seeing you again. Because uh, we kind of just assumed that everyone there was more experienced than us. <laughs> or yeah, faster or whatever. But, uh, you know, I'm not a, a very good boatsman. I don't even know what the word is, Paddler. Uh, to be honest paddler i'm not a very good paddler thank you i have some decent experience but not not a ton and i went in you'll know ryan that i was a little nervous i respect the water greatly i know the power that it has and so i don't want to paint this picture that i'm this great paddler with all this experience and all this you know i really went in with a lot of like question marks about the the boat's ability to handle you know a 195 pound guy plus a bike plus 55 you know with 55 pounds of gear on a five pound inflatable raft going down the river yeah with on rocks a pool and, toy <laughs> yes like it's it, in your mind it doesn't make any yeah, it sense it doesn't quite so, add up until you experience it I want to share that with people that are also trepidated and also like have concerns i don't want you to Put your guard down because like I say, water is so, uh, it demands your respect all the time and you should take it seriously and know what you're doing. But I also want to express that I think that this is, this route in particular we can speak to, this is a very doable route. It was three of our first times doing it and nobody flipped in. Uh, nobody had any like major crazy experiences. We had a couple like, you know, exciting things where I got caught in a tree and a couple little things here and there, but really pretty smooth sailing i would say weather aside and all that pretty nobody swam nobody swam so you know i i think that's important to put out because i'll tell you that was definitely one of my concerns is i and i didn't want to i was super motivated not to get wet or capsized you mentioned that several times that you were not gonna get wet (laughs) (laughs) and again i i think you stayed the driest of all of us so props to you 
I was committed, man. I mean, yeah, we were going to be, like you said, we're going to be in the river, cold, wet all day long. So the, yeah. the better I could make it, the better. Day three, I just said, forget the leggings, forget the rain pants. I'm just going to wear my shorts and just roll with it. What was your goal for day three? I mean, day three, let's see what day three what was deceiving had. because that morning before we put in the sun came out, it was so hopeful. And if anyone's been to, um, splash mountain, Br'er rabbit ride at Disney magical kingdom, there's the part where like, everything's all happy. And then they're like, Oh no, don't go that way. It was like that. <laughs> We had, you know, sunshine. We're finally feeling like it was okay. We put in the water. Sun goes away immediately. The wind picks up. The rain starts falling. Thunder starts. And we were just like, what are we getting ourselves into? And that was like right after we passed our first bailout option of the day. And we had committed to doing like five or six more miles. Yeah. (laughs) There we were. So we did 10 and a half the first day. And I think that, so that would leave us 15 miles on the second day um which at you know four miles an hour and you know you take out for lunch and you'll take out for stuff like you took you took out to dump out your raft a couple times you put out to uh rearrange your gear once sarah Mm -hmm. had to inflate her raft a few times because it had a slow leak or something so your moving average and your total average are obviously going to be different so yeah we let's see i'm trying to see what we did here oh just over six miles we'll say six miles that was kind of the neat thing about this experience for me that really like i said unlocked all the options that you have when you're bike rafting because it was day three we'd been a little tired but mostly i think it was like drained from being in the elements cold wet rainy it's tough mentally to just like stay in that space we were, it was going to be like an eight hour, eight hour day on the river, essentially. And we still had hopes at that point of, of recording a podcast at the end of the day. So yeah. the cool thing was, is, you know, we hop on ride with GPS and I just recorded an episode with ride with GPS. So I'm thinking about it, but you know, it is cool that you can just pull up your phone and I was able to pretty quickly identify that there was a spot in our route and I'll post this um, online uh, so people can see what we actually did. But I could see that, you know, there was a put out at about mile six that would take us, you know, we had about a mile or less back to get to the main route that we were originally biking in on the way in, which would leave us the day before leaving us an eight mile uh, ride back home, which sounded um, really nice at that point. Which sounded nice. So, yeah. Spoiler alert: that's what we did. <laughs> yeah, a little flexibility. Do you think that was the right call? Absolutely. Again, after we passed that first uh, campground where we could have gotten out that day, I, I kind of regretted not going out there. But <laughs> once we made it to the second takeout, I was like, okay, no, this was this was a good amount of paddling. It was a really nice bike ride back for me, at least. I know we all experienced several uh, technical difficulties. Uh, <laughs> I my phone was messed up, and um, I was just you know ill prepared left and right. I was coughing and sneezing and really not doing great from uh, being so cold the previous couple of days. I know you had experienced some uh, some unfortunate food for dinner Saturday night that uh, left you some complications. 
Yeah, I forgot to mention that chicken teriyaki from Mountain House. That's off my list from here on out because, yeah, I woke up that next day. I And that was actually a, a factor in my personal decision making is, I mean, I went into that day uh, just feeling like really shitty from, I think, mild food poisoning, maybe. I don't know. Super low energy. And again, maybe it's just a combination of the food and just being out there. But for whatever reason, and then on the bike ride, once we got to the bike ride, I had a nice throw up on, on one of the climbs. I think you had more than one. <laughs> yeah, I threw up a couple of times just while I was riding. Just, blah. Uh, I stopped for one. Anyway, TMI, but hey, that's bike packing. And then Connor got, he had like this bulge on his tire. His tire gave through and it, it wasn't a flat, but it was like this massive like wart where his tire had failed and he being tubeless, you know, just created this bulge that was like giving him a bump every single rotation. And then a half a mile later, his chain broke and he had left his like toolkit back with the pack rafts where we bailed off the river. And so he like turned it into a, uh, a strider and was going like down these dirt roads with, with a strider, just running and gliding. And yeah, we, we all had a heck of a time getting back to the vehicles. We limped it in for sure, but, uh, and then y'all went the wrong way too. Watch it after that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my phone was, my phone was completely soaked off dead, not working. We rallied to make it happen. It was only eight miles though. So it wasn't too bad. We were making, it was a pretty dramatic eight miles, but I'll say after I threw, after I got done throwing up, I felt way better. And really the day opened up and it, it turned into a beautiful day. Yeah. The sun came out. It looked like the way I thought it would look the whole time. Yeah. It was nice to end on that because we really got to see the true beauty of Arkansas and we rode, you know, that eight miles that we had ridden, you know, the previous day or, or two days prior. And uh, we got to see it again because the first day was rainy and nasty and we got to see it again. Like, man, this is really beautiful. But, you know, you can't can't plan the weather, right? No, you can't. No such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. Yeah. True. Or being ill-prepared. Like we, we definitely, uh, I expected things to, you know, this was a first time, like we said that we've all, a lot of us have done this. Three of us had done this. And so I was, I was ready for it to be an adventure. You know, I mean, I know that there was parts unknown and that you have to go in with that mentality that this isn't going to probably go exactly how you plan it out. Yeah. I mean, none of us had done this route before. Yeah, no, it's new territory. And four I mean, people like quadruples the opportunity for, you know, mishaps, missteps. But it, it was cool, man. We all worked together. Everybody kept their spirits high. Uh, everybody chipped in uh, where they could. And I liked the way that we worked together and made decisions together. And ultimately, we got out together. You know, I mean, uh, it wasn't perfect, um, but I walk away with a sense of uh, pride and accomplishment having done that as my first trip and really in some pretty not great conditions, we did the damn thing. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. I, I gotta say, so I got back, I got back to Georgia and, uh, my buddy Andrew, I was telling him about it and how miserable I was by the end of it essentially. And he said, you know, if you're going on a podcast called bikes or death and you get off your bike, you can only expect to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized at that point that he had a pretty good point there that uh, <laughs> pack rafting with bikes or death was a, a bold decision. 
Oh, man. I almost feel like the only time it went bad, though, was when we got back on the bike, so, right? Yeah, we we really, we did well. Yeah, I I love the I love the sentiment though. I love the sorry to ruin rain on his parade, but I, yeah, sometimes I'm too logic too uh, rational. What's that word? Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sometimes I think too much. Sometimes my brain gets in the way of a good time. I finished reading. Uh, no, I haven't finished. I'm almost done reading. Uh, How to change your mind. Uh, oh, excellent. Yeah, after we talked, uh, you know, I'd started it. And I uh, hadn't got too far and picked it back up. And so I'm really enjoying that. Just listened to uh, Sam Harris uh, podcast as well um, that he did recently. So, yeah, anyway, tangent. But uh, that's a, that's been a big interest of mine ever since we talked. It was already kind of an interest and it's kind of picked up again. Yeah, I mean, that was that was definitely the, uh, the conversation topic of uh, Saturday night there. But uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. It's an excellent introduction to anything on that topic. And then any podcasts featuring uh, uh, Rich Doblin and um, also Robin Carhart-Harris is another uh, neuroscientist who's really on the cutting edge of all that stuff. So, Oh, that's another neuroscientist, eh? What's his name again? Robin is his first name. And then his last name is hyphenated Carhart-Harris. And actually, chapter five of How to Change Your Mind is essentially all about Robin Carr Harris. It's the it's the chapter on um, the neurology. Episode 242 of the Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris. I don't know who it's with, but I know he's one of those main guys. In, uh, James uh, Fadiman, like, it looks like. James Fadiman. Yeah, no, Thank no, no, no. you. Jim Fadiman is absolutely one of the OGs. Um, yeah, Jim Fadiman, he's the author of The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. He's been doing uh, psychedelic research since before it was uh, made illegal back in the late 50s, early 60s, right. uh, early 70s at that point. But yeah, he's, he's been in the game for a long time. Now he's considered the godfather of microdosing. So he's kind of... It was an interesting interview. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, um, he he's kind of shifted his research from the high dose um, therapy to microdosing. Um, and he has some thoughts on that too. So, yeah, I, I would agree that the, uh, one of the largest mistakes of the sixties was that we just got the dosage wrong of psychedelics. How do you feel about uh, Terrence McKenna and his impact? I think he certainly has provided value when it comes to um, introducing new, uh, new veins of thought. I think were he still alive today and his brother Dennis would probably agree with this, that they might've gone a, a little too far in some of the far out uh, directions. But that being said, they also provided some like, invaluable context and um, ideas for the, the study overall. To me, Terrence McKenna is to LSD as um, uh, Edward Abbey is to public lands. I had a feeling you were going with Edward Abbey. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they're kind of like the bad boys in the, in their, you know, in their section, you know, I mean, they're the people who like push the border and, and maybe take it a little bit too far and find where that edge is, you know, and like my takeaway on stuff like that is that we need those people, you know, I mean, there's, there's value. Yeah. The vanguards, man. So I don't know. You listen to me too much. You know what I'm going to (laughs) say. Yeah, I I think um, I mean there are certainly many valid criticisms of Edward Abbey, and you've alluded to that in other podcasts as well. Yeah, um, 
And I think Terrence McKenna didn't have as many personal failings as Edward Abbey did, but however, may have, you know, gone a little far out. Anyone who reads um, anything about his experience at La Chorera will, will understand that there's some, some pretty far out stuff happening there. Um, but that being said, he's, he's contributed a lot of um, really, really important ideas to, you know, the, I guess like the, the mysteries and the gaps in our understanding of the history of, uh, of plant medicines, I think is probably the, the most general way to put it. You know, we have only recently started really trying to understand the history of uh, these indigenous medicines. And, you know, it's not the easiest thing to, to track from like an archaeological or anthropological uh, method. It's an interesting area of research, especially when you start considering. And I mean, I don't know much about this. I know you're pretty knowledgeable about some of the stories of Christianity. You got the Salem witch trials about, you know, how humans have interacted with psychedelics and how it could have potentially influenced where we are today and even even ongoing. What I was going to say about him maybe being a bad boy and pushing the edges, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, from my understanding, we had, you know, from the 30s up into the 50s, a lot of good research going on with LSD. You, you know, good research, I think in quotation marks. I know that some of them were just like parties and weren't too regulated and stuff like this. But, you know, from my understanding, you know, Terrence McKenna is also the reason why it became a class one or schedule one drug. You know, maybe not him directly, but, you know, his influence ultimately led to the suppression of research, which has been suppressed up until just recently. Is that fair? Mm, okay. So I hate to do this, but I must. I think you might be confusing him with Timothy Leary. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's possible. I make mistakes all the time. Yeah. So in that case, yeah. Fuck Timothy Leary. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Sure. So, I mean, Timothy Leary, like he he played his role and he did some stuff, but um, he was certainly a little too exuberant with um his democratization of the substances. He kind of believed that simply providing psychedelic experiences with everyone would be sufficient in you know promoting like a psychedelic revolution or a revolution of of a human consciousness to kind of upend you know. American society and capitalism as a whole and transform the entire world. But as you know, he certainly was aware of, you know, just having the experience isn't enough. It's about your intentionality and about really providing the context necessary for transformative experiences. So yeah. Um, Timothy Leary did a lot of damage um, for the potential that psychedelics had, but there were, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds or thousands even, of people doing good and important work throughout the 50s and 60s who were forced underground in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and their legacies are finally being continued and honored now that some of these restrictions are being rolled back around the Western world, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for correcting me. Anyone who listens and you'll know, I've got a touch of dyslexia added with auditory ADD and in my brain I get well, I get things crossed sometimes and so you get a Timothy and a Terrence yeah it, you know anyway it's it, I make mistakes all the time so I'm happy Terrence to be McKenna correct. is a homie he's is yeah okay he's a great guy 
Um, very high contrast between those two people with similar names. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for the correction. Timothy Leary is the man that I don't, that I have questions about. And that's the one who I, I was referring to about uh, kind of being a bad boy and setting us back. Again, I, you're more knowledgeable about this than I am. So I'm just kind of dipping my toes in the water and, and trying to learn. Um, yeah, that's, that's just what I heard that, you know, some value came from it but more damage than good maybe sure but yeah like you were saying um james fadiman has done excellent things for the field on the whole i haven't listened to that episode of the sam harris podcast that you mentioned but um it does talk about the psychedelic explorer's guide which jim fadiman wrote as well as his other book your symphony of selves uh discover and understand more of who we are um so i'm sure they they talk about some some really quality stuff but yeah, it's good. This just stood out to me. You say I lost my keys and that's not correct. You've misplaced them, but there's a part of you who knows where it is, right? Like you placed your keys somewhere. So somewhere in your psyche, you know where it is, but the person right here may not know it. That Those are the kinds of things that they're, they're talking through. And um, they do talk about obviously using psychotropics as a way to you know, for therapy and accessing different parts of your brain that you're not able to. And it's just a good information podcast, everything from, you know, recreational dosing, which they're not really recommending, but I mean, they go through like, this would be a concert dose. This would be a, you know, lose all contact with anything that ever resembled anything you ever understood to be true, you know, and, and they walk you through the whole progression. I'm curious. So Sam Harris recorded like a 25 minute YouTube video of his experience on a high dose LSD. Have you listened to that? No, I haven't really uh, listened to much of the Sam Harris stuff. I've okay. Yeah. I've just kind of gravitated towards some of the other uh, people who talk about it. He's not the main guy doing the most work. Uh, this trip that he did was the first one he had done in 25 years, you know? So, but I appreciate him because he's got a loud voice and a large platform and is well-respected. And so there's that whole idea of, you know, and you know, this is, you know, back in the day, therapists would try the products that they're recommending. So back in the day, if you're peddling LSD, then you're going to take LSD and you're going to try it and and understand the effect that that's going to have on your patient and have a familiarity with it. So it's like Michael Pollan. It's like, okay, if you're going to write a book about it, we'll do all the things and then come and tell me about it. But don't just tell me about it. You know, you got to have some experience too. Even going back to, you know, indigenous medicines and shamanism. I hesitate to speak too much on that, but you know, in, in a lot of traditions, it's the shaman or the, you know, the healer who, who experiences the substance um, in order to do the healing and, or they will experience alongside of you um, in order to guide you along with that rather than, you know, just having you do on your own. So yeah, there are certainly a lot of, um, a lot of different ways to to pursue that and i think that there are you know now a lot of people uh doing the right work and the right moves to um to pursue the plausible avenues for you know integrating these medicines into society into healing you know the pains and the hurts and the trauma that we have on a whole that traditional western medicine isn't able to address you know obviously like mental health hasn't really had a big breakthrough since the early nineties or so when SSRIs came out and they 
clearly uh, aren't doing the best job ever. Um, a lot of studies show that the placebo effect is sometimes equally, if not more effective than some of the SSRIs that we have out there. And then we have really robust studies coming through with, you know, either psychotherapeutic uh, sessions with MDMA, ecstasy, and also psilocybin and other substances that are coming through with some of the most, you know, most productive results that we've seen in any substance, medicine, method, technique in decades or ever. So sure, yeah, at least, yeah, at least since the fifties, right? Yeah. And so I think it's, it's important to listen to the right people and like Rich Doblin, director of MAPS, the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, anything that uh, has him talking is going to have really quality information Tim Ferriss does a good job on his podcast of pointing towards some of the most important and influential voices. And then again, Jim Fadiman, James Fadiman, um, one of the other voices who's, you know, really been here for decades and can talk uh, eloquently about what's happening and provide a lot of good context for people. And yeah, that guy, Robin Carhart Harris, again, he is, uh, he's a sharp guy as far as uh, some of the younger generations go. So well, whenever I'm, I'm almost done with how to change your mind by Michael Pollan, and then I'll check out Robert Carhart Harris. Yes. Yeah. So he doesn't have any books, but he is a, um, a, a scientist who does uh, studies on, um, he does fMRI scans of people having psychedelic experiences. And uh, he's been on a couple podcasts that are really phenomenal. He does a great job. So, and I also, I recommend going back and rereading chapter five of how to change your mind. Um, it'll, you'll get a good brush drop on that and you'll be like, Oh yeah, yeah. This stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like hit it one more time. Yeah. I listen to that one regularly. Okay, good. Well, thanks dude. It's always really fun to meet new people and I appreciate you kind of challenging me to go and experience something new on that trip. I got to know you and, and know that you're a very thoughtful person who's living an intentional life. And I really enjoyed uh, getting to hang out with you, man, and getting to, I learned a lot from you. I mean, even about all the things we just talked about, all, all the way to, man, camp food and, and different techniques around camp and all kinds of stuff. So I really enjoyed getting to hang out with you, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I think the company we had was phenomenal. I certainly learned a lot on that as well. And I really could not have imagined a better way to kind of reintroduce myself into bike packing and bike rafting as well. You know, after going so long without being able to ride a bike, it really meant a lot to me to be able to have a, a big experience like that and, you know, kind of have a dream come true too, you know, being able to meet you and come on this podcast and just talk about some of the things I care about. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it, dude. It was a good time. All right. I guess we should wrap it up. Two and a half hours. Not bad. All right, dude, I'm going to go uh, start putting these kids to bed, but I do appreciate it. Learned a lot from you and really enjoyed hanging out. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Good luck in LIJ. All right. I think I'm going to go for a bike ride right now. Are you? Yeah, Good why not? You. What time is it there? 7.40? Uh, or 9.40. 9.40. Perfect. Yeah. That's the perfect time to go ride. Yeah. Go ride your damn bike. Yeah, give that K-Light a try. All right. That's awesome, man. Shout out Carrie from K-Light. All right, buddy. Have a good night. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much. Peace out. All right. I hope you're still here with us. What a great episode. I couldn't get off the uh, Zoom chat with Ryan. Admittedly, I wasn't trying very hard. Uh, it was just so much fun 
sometimes you just get in a groove with somebody and I'm not one to cut off a conversation. I like to talk, obviously, and some people are critical of that. Some people don't like it when I talk, but it's like, hey, it's my podcast, man. I got to be talking. One area of the uh, episode that we did cut out was a challenge that Ryan extended to listeners of this podcast. And it kind of came in the conversation in a way that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. And so there wasn't a way to just fit it into the episode. But there's a really nice gesture that he made. It is a little self-promoting to play this segment. But uh, as I mentioned before, I'm in the begging business. So um, this time it feels good to let somebody else do the begging for me. But What follows is a segment that was cut out of the podcast, and it's like 10 minutes long. It's a little bit long. So think about this as a little addendum to uh, today's episode and just insert it anywhere in your mind you'd like to. I don't even remember how uh, it starts, so I don't know how to do a good segue to it. So let's just say, or twinkle, 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 let it roll. You're a patron, aren't you? I am. I think I was patron number like seven or eight. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm curious to get your feedback from the early days. Yeah. What what like attracted you to the podcast at the very beginning? And you were an early adopter, apparently. So I saw like the Rock Guys Instagram post about this bikepacking podcast. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. And this was, you know, October 2018. Like this was back at the inception of everything. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, literally the exact thing that I'm trying to learn about and experience. Uh, So it was just, you know, kind of a perfect storm. I feel like my bikepacking trajectory has kind of followed the podcast in a lot of ways. You know, it was born around the same time. I feel like I've grown up with it. So, yeah, you know, I've enjoyed being a patron. I need to increase my my monthly donation. And I'd like to challenge everyone else who's at that $1 level to pop that up to like three or $5 even. And I feel like there's enough of the $1 patrons that if we all, you know, increase that up just a little bit, uh, we could probably have a pretty serious impact. Um, I know my, my budget is probably almost as tight as, uh, as anyone. And, um, there's a lot of a lot of opportunity still. Like I feel like I've got some wiggle room. I could probably uh, make something happen. So I'd like to give a challenge to all the other one dollar patrons out there. See what they can do. Challenge, hopefully accepted. We'll see. Now I appreciate it, man. I mean, uh, the truth is, you probably know because you're a patron. But I just hit the five hundred dollar a month goal, which was a big one. But I was looking today, and I've got like thirty six new patrons in the last thirty days which is the yeah. most, you know, in a 30-day period. So, I mean, we're getting more than one a day sign up right now. And so I've set my new goal as quitting my job, my day job, which is real estate, so I can focus on this full time, which would be like a dream come true. And But yeah, I mean, I'm, that's kind of the next goal is to quit my day job. And um, I've set up a goal of $2,500 a month to like on Patreon. And it sounds like a lot, but I mean, if you're talking about quitting your job, like it needs, you know, I got two daughters, I, you know, just some baseline cost. I'm not living in a tiny house, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, I think the reality is, is even if everybody that listened to this podcast, even if like a percentage, like half the people that listen to this podcast, there's probably about 5,000 listeners ish. 
And so if half the people gave a dollar, we would be there. So even, you know, I appreciate the challenge, but I'll also say, hey, the $1 people, I appreciate y'all. And like you mentioned, everybody's finances are different. So, you know, to you and to everybody else, I appreciate anything that you can contribute. And I try to be a good steward of those funds, you know, and it, it all really does go to hopefully producing a better podcast. So one more question on that, Ryan, <clears throat> since you've been around since the very beginning, what do you think? Has it gotten better? worse the same oh yeah no you're you're doing a great job of um of you know kind of following the sport as it grows and develops um and and gains popularity because we all know you know riding your bike for more than one day at a time has been around since the inception of bicycles but the community is growing and i think that that's really what the podcast is about you know it's not about like oh we've started riding our bikes this way you know it's more like okay now there's more people than ever who have the opportunity and the accessibility to experience this. And there are stories to tell and there are inspiring stories to tell and to share and to promote. And yeah, as a patron and a listener, I've certainly, you know, valued and benefited from the stories that you've helped share. So I think that, uh, you know, more variety with that is absolutely the name of the game. And yeah, more and better. That's the goal. More and better. You know, it's it's a big pie. There's plenty to go around. I agree. There's plenty more that I could be doing, and there's plenty of room for other podcasters and other media outlets to join the game because it's a growing sport. And as we're talking about here on today's podcast, you know, it, it dips its toes in other waters, which is hiking and rafting and stuff like that. And so we might, it's bikes or death, but you know, I talk about often, mostly it's about getting out in the outdoors and bikes being the preferred method. But you know, there's a lot of great ways to adventure and it's really leading towards uh, just a, a huge interest and growing demand for this type of content. And I feel very, it's, I think that, I mean, I don't know luck. I mean, I have been doing it, but, uh, and it, it's not happenstance that I'm putting in the work, but the timing was pretty lucky. You know, the, it, it does seem that, um, I kind of hit it at the right time where it is really becoming, uh, there's becoming a, a large demand for just information on like how to do it and stuff. So yeah, I think it's um, easy to see that you are at the right time, the right place, yeah. the right motivation, <laughs> the right commitment. And, you know, you linked up with so many other willing players in the sport who, you know, are just ready to, uh, to talk about everything that's happening because it's such an exciting moment where there's a ton happening all the time between all the organized rides, the unorganized rides, races, you know, one-off stuff, overnight things, long distance, short distance, single night, you know, people doing year long, international trips. I mean, there's just so much more happening than any one person or dozens of people could even document. And the fact that you were willing to jump in and commit to delivering, you know, a, a quality podcast to anyone who wants to listen was, you know, there was certainly demand for it. So yeah, it's exciting. It's been a fun ride. And I appreciate you being along for the journey. It's so cool, man. Like I didn't, I didn't know any of this whenever I reached out to you. So it's not like, I don't know, you were this like number one patron fan in the background. You were like, hey, I want to come on the show. It's no, just like, I knew. I like the way the universe works out, man. It's so, yeah. so cool the way everything kind of lines out. And I definitely feel that way with the podcast. I just feel like 
yeah, I put in the work and you have to, but I also have been the benefactor of, like you said, a lot of great guests that have said yes and oh, just yeah. a, a great community that has, I mean, I'm here today because I've been putting in the work, but I've also done it with the help of lots of people in the community and patrons and everybody else. So it's been fun because I don't feel like I'm just out here on my own. I feel like I really am just a part of the community and yeah, I'm the guy behind the microphone, but yeah, this is not a one person podcast. No. I don't think so. I hope yeah. not. And you know that more than anyone. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I try to try to give shout outs when when necessary or when uh, when they're due. All right. Well, uh, should we segue back to the end of our or the rest of our podcast? Yeah, let's get now into that we've uh, inflated my ego sufficiently to continue. You're doing the work at hand. <laughs> no, man, I appreciate it. It's a really. Uh, it's hard to quantify it, you know, to be honest with you. And so maybe I struggle with that. But I feel like probably most people would if they put out a podcast or something like this and it was well received by the community that it was directed to. People are going to, you know, that's just a really good feeling. And uh, I certainly feel that all the time. You know, I enjoy it. So, you know, we got to give credit to you. I mean, you're one of the people that's willing to come on the podcast and share their experiences. And it really is a collection of all these different experiences and people's perspectives and stuff. And that's really the fun part is it's not my ideal way of doing it or it's not this. It's it's really just a nice collection and a good source where we can all learn and grow from each other's experiences and stuff. And that's that's a really fun part about it. So yeah, thanks for you coming on and uh, sharing your bike packing and bike rafting knowledge. Yeah, everyone has a different like expression of the sport. And I think that's what's so beautiful about it is that you know anyone can do it. And it's just a matter of in what ways people vary in the way that they choose to, you know, experience it. And that's the importance of community storytelling. Another thing that I wanted to touch on that you mentioned was um, on the educational side. And I do think that that's where I'm starting to like this podcast is a good example of providing like more information, like more like what I'm calling like bikepacking basics, because I, for a long time, didn't feel qualified to really talk about the gear and the how-to because in many respects, I'm a weekend warrior. I'm a full-time dad, whether they were, they're with me or not. That's the truth, but I, I don't always have my girls with me. But I mean, I don't have, I'm not a full-time athlete. I'm not training all the time. I know you aren't. You got, you know, your job and stuff and you fit in the adventures where you can. And so I always felt like I wasn't the person that was qualified to talk about you know, the how to's and the ins and outs. But what I've come to learn is that, yeah, I might not be the most experienced, but I have to value my own perspectives and my own information the same way that I would value yours or anybody else in the community yeah. and that everybody can benefit from it, whether, you know, I might be here and somebody else is here or somebody might be way ahead of, but I mean, hopefully, you know, in the end, it's just a good mix of helpful information, inspiring stories for listeners, you know? Yeah. I mean, we all have something to learn from anyone that we meet or encounter. And you started doing this three years ago or so, you know? You've certainly had a lot more experiences since then. So you're still holding on to your impressions of what it was like when you were starting out. But here you are with that much more experience doing it. So, and that probably is part of it is like growing in my own comfort zone with it and, and all that. Yeah. 
but anyway, yeah, I mean, that's why like these kinds of podcasts, I think I'll, I'll continue to more of them where, you know, in the beginning, I've always done very like people focused and story focused and, and getting to know like the people behind the Instagram posts or whatever the video, you know, and, and I do like that aspect. I think it's important to make that connection between, you know, an elite athlete or, you know, a guy who builds a house out in the middle of nowhere and like understand the steps that it took to get there and not just like, oh, look at what he has or look at what she did or all this. And I always like to make that parallel because at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we're all on a journey and we all started somewhere and everybody knows that. But I think it's good to have those reminders because you can talk to like a Leo Wilcox or somebody like and be like, man, she's just a regular person on some Sorry, level. Who's that? Who's she? <laughs> <laughs> good one good one all right everyone i will not keep you any longer thank you for being here now go ride your damn bike <laughs> <laughs>